You are listening to 88.1 FM WESU Middletown, all the way to the left of your dial. This is episode three of season nine of Anarchy on Air, your source for anarchist thought, culture, and politics. The views expressed on this program are the views of the individual broadcasters and by no means reflect the views of Wesleyan University or the WESU management. Anarchy on Air is produced by a majority people of color working group that functions on a consensus basis. The group operates under a basic non-hierarchical model, but we are continuously developing our own processes and making decisions for the production of this bi-weekly show. The group's eye is always towards eliminating forces of hierarchy and coercion. Currently, the working group consists of five members with unique backgrounds and political perspectives who collaboratively write, record, and broadcast each episode. Ultimately, our politics are not about a distant idyllic future, but about recreating the world around us right now. On today's show, we bring you an interview one of our crew members, Kehalani Kawanui, conducted with Jacqueline Jones about her book, Goddess of Anarchy, The Life and Times of Lucy Parsons, American Radical. Stay tuned after our PSA and commercial break for some action news around the globe. First on our docket tonight, we are heading up to Montreal, where a branch of the IWW, Industrial Workers of the World, is currently organizing a campaign to fight rampant wage theft against workers from a Montreal restaurant called M.M.M.E. Wine Bar. Aside from being guilty of having a very pretentious name, the IWW has documented approximately $20,000 in unpaid wages and tips among 11 employees following the abrupt closure of the restaurant in January. According to organizers, the owners of the business are also notorious for late paychecks, bounce checks, and underpaying migrant workers. As a result, many workers here have struggled to pay their rent and other basic expenses over the last three months. The IWW has been putting public pressure on this business by calling for its boycott and denouncing its actions on Facebook pages and other promotional sites. Two of the 11 workers have been paid, and this struggle is ongoing as of March 10th. Currently, Venezuela is undergoing mass power outages that have resulted in a shutdown of public transportation, understaffing of critical industries such as healthcare, and food rottage that could lead to shortages. The U.S. maintains that this is a sign the democratically elected president, Maduro, is unfit to rule. However, Maduro and others in Venezuela have asserted that U.S. interference has resulted in the power outages as well as other worsening conditions in Venezuela. The U.S. has since backed a campaign that ousted Maduro from office. Many leftists have criticized this campaign as another instance of the U.S. forcing a coup in Latin American countries out of the fear of the spread of socialism or threats to oil supplies. Claudio Rojas is currently being detained at the Chrome Detention Center for his activism on undocumented immigrant rights. His work was highlighted in the film The Infiltrators, where activists like Rojas purposely let themselves be detained by ICE to gain access and expose the cruelties of for-profit immigrant detention centers, like the Boer Transitional Center in Florida. Once inside, they have been able to organize with other detainees in the center. Starting on February 21st, Oakland teachers walked off their jobs to rally for raises, smaller class sizes, and other school resources, like nurses and counselors. By the middle of the first week, the community support was fully roused with teachers from several other school districts organizing taking the day off or sick outs in solidarity. 
in other parts of the United States and has many have already heard, former Army intelligence analyst Chelsea Manning was sent to jail last Friday for refusing to testify before a grand jury investigating WikiLeaks. U.S. District Judge Claude Hilton ordered Manning to jail for civil contempt of court after a brief hearing in federal court in Alexandria in which Manning confirmed she has no intention of testifying. Manning has already served seven years in prison for leaking hundreds of thousands of State Department and Pentagon documents about the U.S. wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. And for our last piece in action news, in Mexico on February 20th, indigenous community organizer Samir Flores Sobrenas was shot four times after answering a knock at his front door, several days after the popular consultation was scheduled to decide whether to go through with the Project Integral Morelos, or PIM, a project Samir and other community members have been organizing against. President Andres Manuel López Obrador has been holding popular consultations periodically since October 25th to make important decisions for the country. These consultations have been hailed as a restoration of democracy by many, but community organizations and organizers in the areas affected by these decisions are not so complementary. After the assassination of Samir, members of the People's Front in defense of land and water and several affected communities burned and sabotaged voting booths in Samir's name as a way to reject the sham of popular consultation in favor of making decisions based on community organization. The PIM was approved with 59.5% of voters in favor, a majority of those being from people unaffected by the project, but organizers and community members are questioning the legality of these popular consultations and are committed to resisting the PIM regardless. That was the Action News. We're back on Anarchy on Air. You're listening to 88.1 FM WESU. I'm your host, Jeannie, and as I mentioned at the start of the show, we have an interview with one of our co-producers of Anarchy on Air, conducted with Jacqueline Jones about her recent book, Goddess of Anarchy, The Life and Times of Lucy Parsons, American Radical, published by The Basic Books in 2017. Kao Nui is a professor of American studies here at Wesleyan University. Jones teaches American history at the University of Texas at Austin, where she also chairs the history department. She is the author of numerous books, two of which were finalists for the Pulitzer Prize. Labor of Love, Labor of Sorrow, Black Women, Work in the Family from Slavery to the Present, 1985, and A Dreadful Deceit, The Myth of Race from the Colonial Era to Obama's America, 2013. She was a MacArthur Fellow in 1999 to 2004, and from 2011 to 2014, she served as the Vice President for the Professional Division of the American Historical Association. She is currently working on a book on the African American community in Boston during the Civil War. And let's hear what Jacqueline Jones has to say about Lucy Parsons. So Jacqueline Jones, thank you so much for taking time while visiting Wesleyan University to sit down with me and talk about this incredible book, I'm really excited to talk to you and ask you about the research process and also your historical interpretation of this, this giant figure who we've heretofore known so little about. I wanted to start if you could tell us how you came on to wanting to do this particular project as an historian. Well, I teach women's history, the survey of American history to undergraduates, and I'm always looking for interesting women to tell my students about. 
I was familiar with the Carolyn Eshbaugh biography, which came out in 1976, and I always found Lucy Parsons an intriguing figure. When I looked at the book recently, um, well, before I started uh, this study, Goddess of Anarchy, I realized that Eshbaugh devoted only a page and a half to Lucy Parsons' first 20 years. <laughs> and she seemed to know very little about her origins, her, her life in Texas. And I thought, you know, with all the resources online these days, all the newspaper databases, uh, all the census material, it was really time to give Lucy Parsons another look and bring the research up to date, take advantage of all these very rich online resources and others as well. So I'm glad I did because I did find out about her origins. <laughs> Wonderful. Would you mind sharing for our listeners who may be unfamiliar with Parsons or know maybe just one aspect of her very long life? She lived through so many um, American you know, historical eras. If you could just summarize briefly the arc of her life in terms of her lifespan. Yes, she was born in 1851 to an enslaved woman in Virginia. And uh, the owner of the family moved his plantation to Texas during the Civil War around 1863. Then she met Albert Parsons, her future husband, in Waco in the late 1860s. They moved to Chicago. She lived in Chicago the rest of her life. He, of course, was one of the alleged Haymarket conspirators. He was executed in November of 1887. But she had a long and active career after his death. I mean, a lot of people think of her as Albert Parsons' wife and then widow, not realizing that she did have this very public speaking career for many, many years. She lived until 1942, so she died when she was 91 years old. When I looked at the arc of her life, I had to look at slavery, the Civil War, Reconstruction, the Gilded Age, the Progressive Era, on into uh, World War One, the 1920s, the 1930s, and the New Deal, and even the beginning of the of World War Two. So, it was really uh, a very long, eventful life, and uh, I think she provides a, a window into you know many many significant periods uh, in American history from 1850 to 1940. Mm -hmm. Right. Also, with regard to your historical research, you unearthed more about her origins and her origin story. And you did mention the, the, the Carolyn Ashbaugh book only dealing with the first 20 years of her life in a few pages, really struck by the hidden history of where she came from. I myself had heard about her when I was an undergrad in women's mm -hmm. studies but always tried to figure out, was she Native American? Was she Mexican? She seemed to say both. People seemed to have claimed her in sort of the women's history books, uh, less around being, say, a Native American leader or a Mexican or Chicana leader, whereas the labor historians don't necessarily claim her, and she's such a huge part mm -hmm. of the American labor story. But if you could speak to her... Um, her origins in terms of where she actually was born and born into. And this was difficult for a couple of reasons. One is that she never acknowledged the fact that she was born to an enslaved woman. And in fact, 
just as she was ready to launch her speaking career, she made up this fiction that she was the daughter of Mexican and Native American parents. I will say she did not embrace this uh, fake identity with um, any precision or robustness. Uh, she said at one point very famously, the public have no right to my past. They don't care who I am. So she did say uh, for many years that she was born in Texas, uh, Lucy Gonzalez, and it I was determined to find her because I knew that she lived in Waco in the late 1860s, and I thought she must be in the federal manuscript census for Waco. But I stumbled across what I call the Rosetta Stone of Lucy Parsons' life by typing her name into a newspaper database and coming up with an article from the St. Louis Globe Democrat of the fall of 1886, for some reason, that St. Louis paper had a reporter in Waco, Texas, who interviewed people who had known her. And in that uh, news story, they gave her mother's name, Charlotte. They said that her mother had married a, a freed slave named Charlie Crane, who changed his name to Charlie Carter. They gave the name of Lucy's um, owner, T.J. Talaferro, who was a uh, Confederate surgeon. In any case, they gave me some real clues, some real names. And what I did was I looked in the census for Charlotte Carter, and I found her. And I realized that Lucy Parsons was listed in the census as Lucia Carter in Waco in 1870. There she was living in the same home with her mother, although it was an odd arrangement because the census taker listed her as living in her mother's apartment, but then also found her in her own apartment living with her infant son and a couple of other people. But the point is, with this uh, article from the Globe Democrat, I, I went back and was able to confirm those details. And then I learned more about T.J. Talaferro, he was a planter in Virginia. He served in the Confederate Army as a surgeon. He had been um, he had been captured, was a prisoner of war for a while. But anyway, those names led me to her history. Mm -hmm, right, and also this remarkable story of coming from that past, from that history being taken basically to Texas by somebody who claimed ownership over her and her family, and then connecting with Albert Parsons, who was a Confederate soldier. <laughs> it was an unlikely couple. I think we can all agree on that. He was the younger brother of a very famous Confederate general, William H. Parsons. Albert served in the Confederate Army as a scout for a while under um, his brother. And when he, he, both brothers returned to Texas in 1865, they joined the Republican Party. Now, his brother was more what was called a, a, a businessman or railroad Republican. He was interested in uh, the economic development after the war. Albert was interested in politics. He was politically ambitious and began to organize black voters to, for the Republican Party. He was in Waco. We know that Lucy worked as a seamstress. She probably was a domestic servant in the homes of whites in Waco. 
But it was this really small town, and it's not unusual that they met, probably around 1869 or so. Mm-hmm. And of course, Albert Parsons became a very well-known anarchist, and we know that he was one of the, the men executed in the aftermath of what's been termed the Haymarket Riot, or ultimately the Haymarket Massacre, Haymarket Affair, and you document how she you know, identified as a Haymarket widow and mm-hmm. really worked to keep that story alive and understood those men that were executed as martyrs. For listeners who might be unfamiliar with this, if you wouldn't mind giving a brief history about the Haymarket Mm -hmm. incident itself, but also tell us what kind of anarchist was Lucy Parsons? (laughs) Well, first about the Haymarket incident, the um, workers of Chicago were determined to demonstrate and agitate for an eight-hour workday. And they, on May 1st, 1886, Uh, conducted various demonstrations in the city. There were processions down streets. There were strikes. And just a few days later, um, two men were shot by police uh, while striking outside the farm machinery plant. Anarchists called for a protest meeting the day after, that is, on May 4th. And the protest was to be held in a square in Chicago called Haymarket. So there were quite a few people in attendance in the evening at that demonstration. Uh, One anarchist after another spoke. Uh, Albert Parsons spoke, then he left the square. He and Lucy went to a nearby tavern. But while uh, one of the speakers was holding forth from the back of a wagon, Uh, police entered the square in great number. There were about 80 of them. And just as they entered and ordered the speaker down from the wagon, someone threw a bomb into the square. It killed seven policemen and at least four others and wounded uh, countless others. We don't know exactly how many. Well, I should say that the person who threw the bomb has never been identified. We still don't know who did that. The Chicago police could not learn who did that, but they decided to arrest some of the very prominent anarchist agitators in Chicago. And these were primarily German-Americans. They were editors of anarchist newspapers. They were speakers. And Albert Parsons qualified not as a uh, German-American or not as an immigrant, but he was the editor of an anarchist newspaper called The Alarm, and he was a well-known orator for anarchist causes. So he was caught up in this dragnet. He he fled uh, the city for six weeks. And I do look closely at the transcript and realize that um, he actually perjured himself during the trial. I'm sure he didn't throw the bomb. And it's unclear uh, whether he knew anything was going to happen. But in any case, he always claimed that he would never have gone to Haymarket that night with his children if he had known that something violent was going to transpire. But we know he didn't take his children to the square. He sent them home after an earlier meeting with someone else, and he and Lucy proceeded by themselves. But whenever she would talk about that night, she would always say too, and we took our two children uh, there. My husband never would have put us in danger and so forth. So anyway, the trial was a farce. Uh, The judge was prejudiced. The 
jury was um, prejudiced from the beginning. It was not a fair trial. And ultimately, seven men were uh, de uh, declared guilty. Uh, two of those got commuted sentences. One committed suicide in his cell, and four, including uh, Albert Parsons, were executed. What kind of anarchists they were, I think both Parsons, both Parsons, uh, Albert and Lucy, were really best known during this period as agitators. They were not labor organizers. Neither one of them had the patience to really go out and organize workers into a labor union. They weren't particularly ideologues. They wrote a lot, and they wrote in terms that are very familiar to us today about uh, the evils of um, this gap between rich and poor, the effects of machinery in the workplace, the inadequacies of the two-party system. But they were not always consistent. And in fact, Albert said at one point as he launched his career, you may call us communists or anarchists or socialists. We don't really care, meaning there was uh, some fluidity there. He remained a member of the Knights of Labor, which um, some knights said was really uh, contradictory to his uh, self-professed role as an anarchist. But um, they, were, they did speak out against American government. Unlike the socialists, they uh, did not believe anybody should vote. They thought voting was a waste of time, that the two-party political system was too complicit with large corporations. Uh, the two-party system was corrupt, so they had nothing to do with it. But uh, they were both uh, great students of history, of political theory. They read a lot. Albert, in particular, was very keen on using statistics to show the baneful effects of capitalism on workers. But um, there were f several strains of anarchy at this point in time, and they represent a kind of hybrid of those four strains. Right. Also, I jumped in terms of the chronology a bit. If you could say a little more about how they got from Texas to Illinois, why Chicago, and also thinking about what for them was the definitive moment in terms of starting to identify as anarchists in relation to state power and labor. They left Waco in late 1873, and by that time it was clear that the Democrats had regained power in the state, and that Albert, as a, an ambitious Republican, would have no political future. And also, now that the Democrats were back in power, their lives as an interracial couple, uh, their life together, was going to be uh, quite a challenge, to say the least. Now, I think that while he was organizing black voters in Texas, Albert made a really profound connections with German immigrants in the state because they were a key constituency of the Republican Party. We know that one of his duties as Secretary of the State Legislature in 1871, 1872, was to lay out the German language newspapers so that the legislators could read them that day. And I think that's one of the reasons he learned German. He probably knew German before he moved to Chicago. But it was in... Um, late 1872, I think early 1873, he, he went to 
Chicago as part of a tour. He and other editors in uh, Texas were given this tour by the railroad companies and they went around the Midwest. And one of their stops was Chicago. There was a great exposition there. They stopped for a few days. And I think probably there he made some contacts with German Americans in Chicago. Maybe a cousin of someone he knew in Texas or, or again a friend of someone in Texas. So that when they left, they settled immediately in the German community in, in the north side of Chicago. Um, and then he, he just uh, immersed himself in socialist politics, and she did too. They became very active in socialism. And again, I think he was very ambitious in a political sense. He did run for office on the socialist ticket in the late 1870s. He, he never won, and he came to think that the political process was corrupt. And by the early 1880s, he was uh, calling himself an anarchist. Mm-hmm. Great. Well, zoning in a bit more on Lucy Parsons, I want to ask you, in addition to her work as a seamstress, which continued when they were in Chicago, and uh, raising their children, uh, you talk about all the many things that she took up, but so much of it was based on her being an orator and an essayist and publishing. Mm -hmm. And uh, besides labor, her being a champion of labor and really seeing trade unions as the way uh, to uh, kind of transform society, we see, too, through the work that you've done in documenting her um, speaking tours and whatnot, how much she was committed to free speech. And also, maybe, you know, counterintuitively, really hung a lot of her hat on the First Amendment <laughs> and wanted to know if, you know, kind of thinking about that in relation also to the issues of class and race. Of course, we can talk about gender, but that she really focused on labor and class inequality and seemed to think that all other forms of oppression were byproducts of class exploitation. Mm-hmm. And so to me, she's so curious in that way as somebody who, you know, d- denied that she was of African descent throughout her life, knew very well that she was dealing with white laborers. Also, the quote that you mentioned of how she said, you know, people wouldn't care and, and don't shouldn't know, but wouldn't want to know. And how she w- did code as a woman of color in most cases and was regarded as such. I mean, for me, one of the many feats of this book is is the rigor of the scholarship of course and the the strong narrative uh you know the, it's beautifully written but how you so sensitively engage who she was and deal with the contradictions of her life and i wonder if you might say more about that in relation to race class and gender so i was concerned about the trauma she suffered as a young woman we know she was born in 1851 to an enslaved woman, very dark skin, and Lucy is not, so her father was probably a white man on the plantation, maybe her owner or an overseer. It's unclear. Um, Then to move, uh, to be forcibly removed from Virginia to Texas during the war, that was really uh, really a kind of horrific uh, middle passage from what I can gather. It uh, involved long months of travel. The elderly were left by the wayside. Uh, very difficult to make your way through um, that area of the country, obviously, um, in the midst of a uh, civil war. And all I could do was speculate about the effects of 
that trauma on her later years. We know that her mother moved the family into Waco in 1865 because the countryside was so violent. There were so many murders and beatings of free people by white landowners in McLennan County right after the war. Um, all of this uh, was really, um, you know, this kind of violent childhood. She she does seek to leave it behind, at least in her public persona. And she never draws upon her own uh, background, her own trauma, to say that she understands what it's like to be exploited or she understands the dynamics of oppression because of her own situation. She never does that. She presents herself as kind of a um, fully made person as an adult who is devoted to the laboring classes, the white laboring classes, the urban workers especially. And she has a keen understanding of the difficulties these workers um, endure. Obviously, this is pre-New Deal. There are no uh, minimum wages, no maximum hours, no safety precautions in the work site. Children are working. It's it's clear to all uh, the um, uh, terrible issues that afflict the laboring classes during this period. So she uh, aligns herself with them. I, I do think it is ironic, not because she was of African descent, but because she considered herself a radical, that she really seemed to have no interest in the plight of workers of color, whether Chinese or African-American. Uh, like most uh, radicals, most leftists, the socialists believe this too. Um, at the time, these groups uh, were a threat to white workers because they undercut the wages. They would work for so little that they really depressed wages for all workers throughout the United States. And they were to be kept out or shunned. They were not to be included in any organizing efforts. I mean, that was a tremendous mistake, but it speaks to the the prejudice against these other workers during this period. Mm -hmm, right. And now, where about gender and sexual politics? I mean, I was really struck by when you when Emma Goldman enters the story and how Emma Goldman regarded her. Also, listeners who are familiar with anarchism will will tell other people we hear more about Emma Goldman than Lucy Parsons, and we might think about all those reasons why. But just wondering about the gender and sexual politics, and also the fact that she was this working woman taking care of the family while doing all these other things, and also how she actually um, lived her life versus how she talked about, say, marital uh, fidelity and uh, monogamy yeah. and such. And she presented herself as the very prim Victorian wife and then widow, uh, which was not the case. And Emma Goldman knew it and considered her a great hypocrite. In the 1890s, the two of them got into a feud over monogamy, free love, with Parsons saying uh, the family is really the essential unit of society and you want your children to know who their father is. So uh, having multiple sexual partners is an awful thing to do. And Emma Goldman um, pointed to Lucy Parsons and said, of all people, you know, she should not be... <laughs> talking about monogamy, because we know that Parsons had a very public affair with a 
young man after uh, Albert was executed. This was a couple years later, Martin Locker. And it, it was um, a very, as I said, it was very public and it ended badly in a courtroom, actually. But Locker's uh, wife and children lived around the corner and it was quite a scandal. But um, Parsons, you know, she really didn't align herself with women's rights per se. First of all, she thought the suffragists were way off base because voting was a waste of time. But once in a while in her writings, she would say something about beleaguered womanhood, women who had too many children, who didn't know anything about birth control and who were uh, abused by their husbands. I mean, she did understand that women uh, were vulnerable in certain respects, but again, she identified with more, I think, with the men in the sense that her appeals were always calls to action on the part of the men. She would end her appeal with be a man or, you know, learn to be a man, exhorting men to go out and protect their wives and children, sometimes by engaging in violence or striking. So, yeah, the gender politics um, are very um, problematic in the sense that she lived a life that was um, one she thought of integrity because she was quite honest at the end of her life. She followed her sexual impulses, but she felt constrained. And it's just one aspect of her life where she did feel constrained. And I think, you know, in not being able to acknowledge her background and not being able to acknowledge her own free sexual spirit, she lived a life that was bound in a way that um, does contradict, I think, her rhetoric. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Thank you for that. I wonder if you might speak briefly um, about the fact that she identified as a communist by the end of her life and what kind of shifts took place uh, for her politically. She was um, committed to the ILD, the International Legal Defense, uh, which was a communist group in the started in the early 1920s. And that was a group that defended famous radicals who had been arrested, were undergoing trial, or uh, they raised money for the defense of these radicals. Now, it is true that during the 1930s, she said at one point that it was only the communists, she felt, who were doing really great organizing. In Chicago, she was definitely disgusted by the New Deal. She was disappointed that so many workers aligned with the Democratic Party. She thought that was a betrayal of the revolutionary promise. Um, I, I don't think that she ever joined the Communist Party. She was interviewed by the Daily Worker a couple times, and they ran a, um, an obituary on her. But they would have said if she had actually become a member. And I think by, the, by that time, I mean, in the 30s, she was in her 80s. She had not entirely withdrawn from public life, but she really wasn't going to the uh, weekly or nightly meetings that she uh, attended when she was a younger woman, whether they were socialist meetings or anarchist meetings. She wasn't going to communist meetings in the 30s. Mm -hmm. I see. 
I wonder too, I don't want to uh, miss the opportunity to ask you about the title oh, of the book or yeah. the first part of the title of the book, Goddess of Anarchy, which seems so such an oxymoron. If you could speak to that. Right. And the um, anarchists have pointed out to me that anarchists believe no gods, no masters. So why would a book about an anarchist be titled Goddess of Anarchy. First of all, it is a quote from a newspaper in Chicago, the dusky goddess of anarchy speaks her mind, was one of the headlines, and it was meant to ridicule her, to um, hold her up as a, you know, a subject, an object of, of ridicule. But I think, um, I think she would have liked the title because she, first of all, was very vain, she was very beautiful, and she would like, have liked the idea that, uh, of being called a goddess. <laughs> and it uh, suggests a certain influence uh, over people that she certainly would have embraced. And so I made no apologies about the, the title because, again, I think that she probably would have liked it. <laughs> yeah. Well, in wrapping up, I wanted to invite you to share with our listeners sort of what for you in terms of doing this this book, this remarkable project, was the most rewarding or illuminating and the kind of takeaway. I learned so much about her that I hadn't known. This was such a long life. She was so resilient. I really feel she... She felt she was most alive when she was dodging the police who were trying to stop her from speaking. You know, she showed uh, a great deal of courage on the stage when the undercover cops would try to shut her down or pull her off the stage or make her display the American flag, and she wouldn't. Um, she really uh, loved that kind of, uh, well, really a kind of urban guerrilla warfare where she was dodging the police uh, from one street corner to another. So I, I was fascinated by that, by her really steadfast uh, support for the First Amendment. And, and yet I came away feeling very ambivalent about some of her choices, and, and some of them I was downright horrified by, especially her decision in 1899 to commit her son to an insane asylum because he had um, disagreed with her. He threatened to join the army. He was planning to join the army in 1899, and she, of course, was an anti-imperialist and she was quite horrified by that. And there was a certain dogmatism to her that um, I had to contend with. I think in the end, I just had to speculate about her, how her very difficult childhood might have molded her into a person who was resilient, was determined, but was not always beloved. The people who knew her were not always... Um, did not always find her appealing. So uh, I, I'm not sure. I left, I left the epilogue on a, on a kind of ambivalent note. I think, you know, she, she was so naive in a way about her rhetoric, which was so raw and calling on people to use dynamite, learn the use of explosives. That, and that was ultimately what got her husband executed, but she even persisted with that rhetoric afterwards. And and a lot of workers, of course, were just completely turned off by that kind of violent rhetoric. So she was not always successful, but she was quite the celebrity in her time. Mm -hmm. <laughs> 
And listeners, that was Kaylani Kaunui, co-producer of Anarchy on Air, interviewing Jacqueline Jones about her recent book, Goddess of Anarchy, The Life and Times of Lucy Parsons, American Radical. The interview was conducted in early March when Jones visited Wesleyan University to deliver a lecture about her research on Parsons. At the lecture, which we are unable to air here due to limited time, one of our audience members asked about Lucy Parsons' children and how they were racialized and how the one-drop rule worked to classify black people as a segregated labor class. Jacqueline Jones then answers how Parson might have subverted the racial schema in her refusal to identify as an African descendant as a way to excrete more agency in her life. Let's listen to how Jones answers. Well, it's fascinating because since the Parsons spent their lives in this German-American community, I think they felt they found more acceptance than they would have if they had been in a community of native-born white Americans. Uh, They were considered an exotic couple. I do have a couple of uh, indications that they were a striking couple. You know, they would walk down the street. She was taller than Albert. She was uh, had darker skin, but still they seem to have been welcome in both the socialist and the anarchist communities. The kids, uh, from what I gathered, looked white. Lulu died in 1888 from complications from, I think, scarlet fever. Uh, and they went to uh, Albert Finnish Public School he went to an integrated school in Chicago. And so, yeah, I mean, they were identified on their birth certificate because the people completing the certificate knew the mother. And uh, so based on what she looked like, and a lot of people did assume that she had, that she was of African descent. So her fiction did not always convince people, even when she was out speaking and they would say, you know, look at, they would try and look at the texture of her hair and the shape of her nose and, you know, try and figure out her origins. And, and some would say she looks like she does have some African heritage. But I, I like your point, though, about, you know, honoring her choices and thinking to herself, how am I going to be most effective? You know, I'm going to be most effective if I don't dwell on my past and get caught up in what at the time was called the Negro question. I'm going to be most effective if I'm allowed to speak uh, because people think I'm half Mexican and uh, don't think I'm black. I mean, yeah, on the one hand, it seems very calculated and even maybe crass, but on the other hand, it does seem to have worked for her in the sense that she had the vast audiences she wanted. And she was constantly being quoted in the paper. And sometimes she was identified as a negress, uh, but other times she wasn't, which was remarkable for this day and age for a public figure not to be identified by her skin color or her race. So um, she's still an enigma. You know, I didn't have enough material about her personally. I didn't really learn that much about her interior life, but I did. Um, speculate about the effect of her very violent childhood on her later life, the trauma that you mentioned, and I think did help shape her. Next, someone from the audience asked about Lucy Parsons' stance on monogamy and hypocrisy. 
about her convictions regarding sexuality in the anarchist milieu. She harkens back to the cooperative commonwealth tradition of the antebellum period, this idea of people living in voluntary associations together, but the family is still very much part of those associational relationships. Uh, this is the 1890s when this other strain of anarchism becomes very prominent. There are a lot of publications that come out with denunciations of monogamy, glorifications of <clears throat> free love, and she gets into debates with these folks. And they, they are, um, you know, they don't know what to do with her because on the one hand, she is this iconic figure. You know, she's associated with labor radicalism. On the other hand, she sounds like, you know, a middle-class Victorian woman uh, talking extensively about the um, integrity of the family, the importance of keeping husbands and wives and children together. So, um, but I think it's all this public persona where, you know, there's a lot of herself she doesn't want to reveal. And perhaps to have admitted, I mean, a lot of people in Chicago knew of her affair with Locker. That was in the papers. But other people in other parts of the country, she didn't want them to be distracted by, oh, you know, not only is she of mixed race, but she practices free love. She takes up with married men. You know, that... That would be the story, wouldn't it? Not her message, her messenger, which she thought was the essential part of her. <laughs> Another audience asked Jones about how she ended up feeling about Parsons as her research subject, about her personal character, and whether her form of anarchism was perhaps self-defeating. And, you know, I did have mixed feelings about her throughout because I realized... I realized by the 1880s or so that she was really not going to change her views. Chicago was changing tremendously. Um, there was an emerging consumer culture. Uh, people were going to amusement parks. People were buying things in department stores. Uh, the economy was expanding. Uh, the number of jobs was not finite. It was expanding greatly, which she never seemed to acknowledge. There was a lot going on, in the ground, on the ground in Chicago in the early 20th century. She did not acknowledged uh, in terms of labor union history, trade unions, and what was happening to them. So in some ways, she seemed kind of stuck in time. You know, back in the 1870s, this cooperative commonwealth um, idea. And I, I really thought that she uh, didn't grow. She didn't uh, expand. She, although she was, uh, you know, she was very smart and she read a lot, she didn't seem to kind of grasp what was going on in the larger sense. I did decide halfway through it, I didn't like her. I mean, halfway through the writing. And then I said, ooh, I'm only up to, you know, she's only 40 years old and I don't like her. And I've got another 45 years to go and what am I going to do? But then, you know, I, I, just, um, I just found her so fascinating that I obviously <laughs> persevered. But it, it is hard without her own words. Um, to really know much about what's going on in her mind. I could only, she, she wrote a lot, obviously she gave a lot of speeches, so I have that material. Another person asked how much Jones could speculate as to how Lucy Parsons may have influenced her husband, Albert Parsons, especially with regard to his writings, and if she may have worked through him. 
Well, it's a very good question. I do get the sense they very much consider themselves soulmates, that they were on the same page pretty much all the time with the same ideas. But keep in mind that they really present themselves as speakers. I, I'm not sure that they argued with each other over fine points of anarchist ideology. But I do think they informed each other, they inspired each other. When you read about them going to these meetings, these socialist meetings uh, on Monday night, whenever they were held, uh, when they first arrived in Chicago, she's always there. And uh, she's very much a participant. She begins to write for a socialist paper in the late 1870s, in uh, 1878 or so. You can tell she's developing her own voice. He, he likes to s cite lots of statistics and calls for the creation of a State Bureau of Labor Statistics, which eventually does happen. She's more the Victorian sentimentalist. And in her fiction, she does write some kind of futuristic short stories. She's, uh, she taps into kind of sentimental tropes. So they, they have their own styles and they have their own way of looking at the world. But their, their letters... I do see some um, letters when he's in prison, and you know, I I do think the affection there was was very real, and her her grief was real. Although within a week or so, uh, <laughs> she was um, you know working on a new book to be published right after his death, and then she takes to the um, you know speaking tour again. So she did recover pretty quickly, but. You know. <laughs> Finally, an audience member asked Jones about Parsons' journey to England in the late 19th century, her networks, and how she was received there on her speaking tour. There are a couple of interesting elements to her uh, visit there. One was the uh, transatlantic voyage over. And she, um, her way was paid by the English socialists, so she was able to um, have a very nice stateroom, and she enjoyed the other passengers. And she, uh, it, she could be a delightful travel correspondent when she wanted to be. She has a wonderful um, story about this voyage, and they were you know, all seasick together, and she enjoyed reciting poetry for the group, and she really um, had a nice voyage over. She spoke a variety of places during that visit. It was her only visit to England. And she found when she got there that the socialists were really not happy because she was associated with kind of this rhetorical bomb throwing and uh, they were striving for a kind of respectability that she seemed to disdain. So uh, as far as her listeners, I'm not sure. I've just been able to read a few of the papers that covered her then. Uh, in any case, then she came back and by the time she came back, she had been covered so extensively in the papers that all the officers on board the ship knew who she was, and she was treated very poorly, she said, by them on the way back because they, um, you know, uh, didn't want to think that they were in the company of an anarchist. So the trip itself was really very interesting. And I will say that, you know, she... I think promoted this idea of herself as um, half Mexican, half Native American, perhaps to avoid the 
horrible treatment she would have received had people known or thought she was African-American. I mean, she traveled so much, you can imagine segregation on the railroads and in hotels and so forth. So um, anyway, the travel is really interesting. That particular visit, I think, was fascinating. And the vicar who, whom I met is actually writing a longer paper on that particular trip. So I'm eager to see that. And again, folks, that was Jacqueline Jones' interview and lecture at Wesleyan University on Lucy Parsons. This is the end of our show, and my name is Jeannie. Thank you so much for listening to Anarchy on Air.